0: Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. Fifteen years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio And thank you. I'm Christopher Vyton. This is Open Source. Meet the new right this hour. The anti-liberal and wannabe populist future of the Republican Party. Our guest to start the conversation is Sorab Amari the editor of the combative young Compact magazine. The left liberal podcaster Matt Sitman will put him to the test. You are known, Sorab Amari, for your way with radical ideas and also for your journey to the age of 37. Born a modern Muslim in Tehran, you've been moving west since your teens through many varieties of politics and also journalism, mostly on the right, on the opinion pages of Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal and the New York Post, but then you've made a very public turn to an articulate Catholicism. And your politics, you call it conservative, has turned militantly anti-establishment. You could sound like a shapeshifter, Sorab, or maybe a model of improvisation and growth. How do you describe yourself?
1: I would describe myself increasingly not as a conservative, if conservative means Preserving the Republican Party's consensus that's governed the party, let's say, since the 1980s. In that sense, I'm not a conservative. I would describe myself as a populist and a political Catholic. You or
0: somebody else described you as a
1: right-to-life New Dealer. Jonah Goldberg, more of a kind of establishmentarian conservative, reflecting on a conference I organized, said, hey, these guys are just pro-life New Dealers. He meant it in a derisive sense, but I sort of embraced the label because I think the New Deal was an achievement, and I happen to be pro life and culturally conservative.
0: I wish you'd just start with three basic categories of all politics one, economics, about work, wages, fairness. Second category, cultural politics, values as you understand them. And three, your vision of the United States in the world, meaning foreign military policy, interventionism in
1: short. Would you start out on economics? You're pro-union, I read. My economic views would be characterized as solidaristic. You could easily say that I hold left economic views. I'm not a socialist, but I do believe that market societies are pervaded by coercion private coercion, to which government is often the answer. And it necessarily means government raising up countervailing power. That is, the people who are subject to that coercion need government help in order to be able to mount a response and level the playing field. And this was the achievement of, I've heard it called political exchange capitalism. I've heard it called social democracy. I've heard it called socially managed capitalism. It was the achievement of U.S. society, and it was a bipartisan achievement through the Nixon era of the New Deal. That is, the logic of the New Deal was pressed by FDR, but it was subsequently upheld and expanded by Eisenhower and Nixon. And of course, in Europe, post-war, you had not just social Democrats, but Christian Democrats more or less rallying to the same program. Of course, the US version was much less comprehensive, but nevertheless, it was a time during which you had high unionization, high economic regulation, and rapid growth and prosperity for middle class and working class people. So if I were to try to describe my economics, I would say I'm someone who thinks we should strive to restore some of the underlying logic of the era of managed capitalism, highly managed capitalism. Equality? Where's that? Equality is a component of that because if you think society is pervaded by private power, one way to check that is simply to have a relatively more equal distribution of the social income. One of the problems today is the ability of private equity and hedge funds to just do a lot in the economy that's purely speculative and is not in any way productive in any way that ordinary Americans would recognize as productive activity. How was that checked? Well, partly it was just checked by creating a more equal society in the years from 1945 to roughly, let's say, 1973, where banking was highly regulated. When you don't have so much capital slushing around, you necessarily check the power of the wealthy to coerce working and middle class people. And you are a conservative still? On social issues, I'm well to the right of the median voter, let alone the median journalist. On economics, do you call yourself a conservative? I do, because I think that one key element of conservatism, as opposed to libertarianism, is realism. And what I mean by that is looking at the world as it really is, rather than as one would wish it to be. So there's nothing, I think, contradictory about being a conservative and being concerned about the problem of private economic power. Sir, I
0: Speak of the cultural issues, most especially,
1: in a way, the
0: resurfacing of name-brand religion and God in our politics. You said that what you want to see again would be cultural normality and an ordinary life of virtue as something possible to ordinary people. What do you mean by normality?
1: I mean a society in which men and women can raise their children according to stable values, values that conduce to the reproduction of the natural family, where society in various ways supports that vision of the natural family reproduced down their ages, people being encouraged to practice religious faith and so forth. And I think the important thing And I think I'd speak for a broader cohort is, let's say, establishment conservatives share that outcome, share that vision as that's that's what you want to strive for. Where, quote unquote, the new right parts ways with them is in the realization that that just doesn't come about through if you just preach it enough, if you just say enough that, hey, the natural family is good, we should have children, we should have higher rates of church attendance, etc., etc., if you just say it, and meanwhile, the kind of material substrate of society that supports such structures, people's uh, ability to make these kinds of choices is corroding, it's corroding as a result of the precariousness built into our economy, lack of access to healthcare, the nature of our jobs being such that we can't spend time with our children, because of the sort of irregularity of hours, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. If you have a situation like that, then you can't, expect them to make those kinds of choices, and indeed, a lot of people aren't. There's a lot about how we structure our laws and our, especially, I think, our political economy that hinders family formation, that hinders the stability that people need and actually tends towards this precarity. Speak of the United States in the world,
0: a troubled empire. You've been more and more critical, as I read you, Sorab, of the interventionist unit party, the unanimity around interventions here and there, notably Ukraine. You don't like that either. You say it's springtime again for the democracy export industry, which racked up a very bad record in the last 20 years. Define yourself in foreign
1: policy. It's worthwhile to note that I used to be a member of the democracy export industry. I started my career at the Wall Street Journal editorial pages for five years, where I was a proponent of democracy promotion, including using the force of arms as the need may be. In the Iraq war specifically? <laughs> Complicated. I was a leftist in college and I, you know, opposed the Iraq war because I was in was 2003. And then I went through it. what is a very typical political journey from the left to, let's say, neoconservatism, which is roughly the ideology of the journal editorial page. So that, oddly enough, I had opposed the Iraq war, like in 2003 but had become a late proponent of it in my mid-20s, you know, early Obama era. We're talking about a, a transformation that happened when I was entirely in my early 20s. But by the time I was like 26, 27 years old, I had to look around at the outcome of these interventions. Obviously, the misery of Iraq, hundreds of thousands of people Killed Tens of thousands of US troops killed or maimed, the waste of blood and treasure, and then ultimately for what? For Iran to dominate Iraq or the outcome in Syria, creating a situation of state failure and statelessness for millions of people, then going to Europe and destabilizing European politics, vast swaths of North Africa after the Libyan intervention. Again, creating this vortex of failed states, civil war, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I made a kind of prudential call. I was young enough to be able to not be so attached to those commitments to say, hey, how did this actually turn out? Well, it turned out terribly. Why was that? It's because the idea of the United States willy nilly overthrowing sovereign governments elsewhere might be a bad idea. And so this kind of line of thought, I took it to its logical conclusion to where I am today, which I describe using a common descriptor for it of, of realism and restraint. But what it rejects is this kind of Manichean division of the world between the forces of light and good and democracy versus autocracy, which constantly puts Washington in the position of being hypocritical. Most recently, President Biden described the conflict defining the world as between democracy and autocracy, democracy and dictatorship. The problem is, for example, within the umbrella of U.S. good guys are states that are pretty nasty themselves. It seems like a foolish way to describe the world and a dangerous way, because if everything is an existential battle between good and evil in international relations, I mean, with a capital G and a capital E, then... You must commit to potentially total war. You must commit to wars on multiple fronts, which people are talking about right now in Washington. Oh, you know, the U.S. can actually fight Iran, Russia, and China at the same time. Well, that's madness. So my position there is largely informed by a kind of prudential waking up to the outcome of some of the interventions I supported in my early and mid-20s. So, Rob, quick lines by way of an
0: outline on two other points inalienable rights in a moment when voting rights for example abortion rights also are
1: in danger well I mean I would say that rights correspond with duties and there are rights that can be abstractions we pull out of thin air for example disagree with their existing a uh, a right to terminate a human being, essentially, in utero. So of course I believe in rights, but I hold to the more classical conception that rights correspond to duties. So for example, the right of the parent or the right of the father and mother are rights that correspond to their duties to form nourishing families in which children can thrive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Last question for the
0: preliminary. Was democracy on the ballot this year in 2022?
1: What would that mean? Are you worried about democracy? No, I think democracy was the ballot. The practice of going to the polling booth and picking Your choice of representative within our Republican and Democratic form of government, that is the exercise of democracy and the idea that, you know, depending on what party you pick, you're either for or against democracy because you favor XYZ policy outcomes is itself anti-democratic. What was at stake in the ballot box is the normal practice of democracy and to frame one set of choices as threatening democracy is itself, again, to my mind, that's anti-democratic. Coming up, the modern Republican
0: habit of intellectual infighting. This is Open Source. We're blood sampling the new right republicanism of Sorab Amari, who edits the young magazine Compact. And we're trying to decode it with his liberal counterpart, Matt Sitman, whose podcast is Know your enemy. Matt Sidman, what do you take to be the history of this kind of brawling internal Republican battle, going back to Barry Goldwater, Bill Buckley, all of them?
2: It never stops. It makes a mark. Well, you know, I do think the right is, they've always been very interested in internal debates over what the meaning of conservatism really is. I mean, these are debates that really go back to the origins of the post-World War II conservative movement that we associate with Bill Buckley and the founding of National Review in 1955 with the rise of people like Ronald Reagan. And you know, National Review, they called their ideology fusionism meaning they fused together uh, seemingly disparate political emphases. It was really a mix of economic libertarianism and free market capitalism, Cold War anti-communism of a rather muscular, militaristic kind, and, of course, social conservatism, traditional values. Very unlike Sorab's views today, but fit him on that, on that map you know one way to understand someone like sorab or at least the movement he was representing in a way here is that the social conservatives the people who are more interested in traditional families traditional values someone like sorab would say you know these past however many decades 70 years say since the 1950s this Version of conservatism. It's the social conservatives who always lost. Now, I don't know how true that is. I mean, you can look at, say, the overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision. That was a big win for them. But overall, they look out at the country and they say gay people are getting married, trans issues are at the fore, families have continued to decline or break down, or however they'd want to put it. And so the people who've really won in the Republican Party these past few decades are the economic royalists, the plutocrats, the libertarians, Mm. the free market capitalists. And the social conservatives are now saying, no, 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 We want ours now, and we actually think it's more conducive to, say, starting a family, to have a more populist economics. It's the libertarianism, the economic libertarianism, that's been undercutting our goals as social conservatives. There was a a kind of document, I believe Sorab signed, but it was published in First Things a couple years ago, and it was called Against the Dead Consensus. And the dead consensus was that fusionist combination of libertarianism, anti-communism, and moral traditionalism slash traditional family values. And they say, we're done with this. It was a raw deal for us, and we want something else. And so there is a real way in which someone like Sorab and, and some of his confreres are rejecting what had been the operative ideology of the right in the Republican Party for the past few decades, and that kind of reached its apotheosis with Ronald Reagan.
0: Sorab Amari has found his own song in this
2: mix of conservative thinking how are you hearing it? I appreciate that Saurabh has changed his mind over the years on especially these foreign policy questions. I have too. When I was a young Republican in my early 20s, I cringe over some of the college op-eds I wrote in favor of the Iraq War. But I do think in some of uh, the conversations, some of the differences between us might have come out. Maybe we can just start at the beginning with economics. I think there's probably some overlap between the two of us on economic questions. I mean, I would describe myself as a democratic socialist, partly because it's hard to come up with a term or a name for an alternative, and that's one way I name it. For example, he looked back to the period I think he named between 1945 and 1973, which I agree there is some nostalgia for. But I do worry that there's a kind of static imagery we have of that period, you know, where we forget that it was very good for some workers. But some of the way we can talk about it, I think, naturalizes kind of the hierarchies that that period reinforced. For example, it mostly was white workers who had the good union jobs. So, you know, this period of time, it can be white workers were in, black workers were out, women were in the home, and men were on the assembly line. And I think today when you look at some of the economic struggles, the battles over, say, unionization at Amazon or at Starbucks, you know, we're talking about a single African-American woman working at Starbucks – how does that fit into the nostalgic vision of the 1945 to 1973 period? I think, too, when you really think about that post-war period, it's easy to forget that America bestrode the world after World War II when Europe was in economic ruins. I mean, look at, say, the percentage of steel made in the world that you know was in the United States. And, you know, because other countries' economies were devastated by the war. So it's a kind of period of time where there were real gains for workers. Many workers had it better than they do now. And I would not dispute that at all. But I think, you know, looking at the situation now, that period will have some lessons we can take from it, but perhaps others uh, are less useful.
0: What would we give, though, Matt, for the confidence, the expansiveness, and the the sense—and I I was growing up in exactly that period—that things were going to get better for black people, eventually for women, too? It all was sort of in
2: the project. In the project, it might have been something that people were striving towards, but look at the realities of it. I grew up in central Pennsylvania. And my father, you know, until he started his own business, worked for Pittsburgh Plate and Glass, PPG, out of Pittsburgh. Just the case that those gains that were argued for, striven for, they never really came. Hmm. So uh, the hope might have been there, but the reality, I think, never really caught up to it. I want
0: you to direct it at Sorab as pointedly as you can, but specifically, obviously he's a man in motion on a wide field. Do you take him still to be a conservative,
2: should be have our dukes up before an enemy. And what about his critique of liberalism? That's an interesting question. I don't know how I would label Sohrab. I mean, I think we're in a period where labels and some of the old categories are in flux and falling away. And I don't really feel that compelled to pin him down with some label. I'm willing to read what he says and grapple with it.
1: Look, there is a potentially a risk of a fake kind of labor populism on the right that is just pure culture war. It's like, you know, the only vision of a, a laborer who has a right to unionize is like a burly white guy, when in fact today's labor force is much, much different. And yet the sort of economic issues are still germane and, and, and calling out for justice. Can
0: I say, Matt, and sorry, I'm, I'm a liberal, a proud, happy liberal in what I would call the conquered Massachusetts tradition, but of Emerson in a big way, Thoreau, William James supremely. Uh, These men were skeptics, absolutely nonconformists. They were not just open-minded, but they believed in the supremacy of the
1: mind. And the rest was details. What's wrong with that, Saurabh? I obviously share an admiration for individual liberal thinkers of the 19th and 18th century, including, by the way, the American founders. I'm a student, for example, of Hamiltonian economic thinking. I'm a student of Lincoln on many dimensions. Nevertheless, I do think that liberal ideology, OG liberalism, if you will, has that tendency that Matt identified, which is a vision of individuals as kind of radically alone in a brutish world. And therefore, the only thing they have going for them is their individual autonomy and their rights. And of course, the sort of abstract rights and the supreme image of this is the market exchange. And you go to, for example, um, the more sort of social and cultural things, that same tendency toward reducing everything to transaction and reducing everything in a destructive way to to rights has also manifested itself in, for example, commercial surrogacy. So it seems like there have been breaks in liberalism in practice, but the ideology itself tends to toward this kind of totalizing of reducing uh, life to transactionality, to battle of individual rights and who can claim a stronger autonomy claim over and against, you know, an older set of ideas about the common good, which are at the heart, not just of the Christian tradition, but of the classical Greco-Roman tradition. Last point to make is a lot of those things that Matt identified as, you know, good liberal praxis, I agree with some of them being worthwhile. So, you know, uh, freedom of speech within certain confines, or the ability to hold power accountable through various mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these have pre liberal roots and there's been this kind of I think a historical tendency on the part of liberals to frame the achievements that are really, let's say, a millennium old, arising out of the classical tradition and out of medieval Christendom and saying Really, we just achieved this in the past 300 years or 200 years. And before that was all horror. People, you know, in the pre-liberal age were just total autocrats, authoritarians, etc. And then came the light of the political liberalism. So a lot of things that you like about liberalism are in fact older and you can maybe ditch some of the ideological liberalism and still retain those praxis that you like. Let me, let me
0: just remind us that what we're after here is some understanding of what this new right zeal in the Republican Party portends for the 2020s, and maybe a lot longer than that. I've got to mention Donald Trump, who hovered low over this 2022 election scene. He's back in the game in a big way, and so are a number of his candidates. What about the Trump question, Sorab? Are you a Trumpian? Were you ever? Are we living through an
1: extension
0: of Trump or a post-Trump
1: new beginning? The way I look at Trump is that he opened a space in which things that I and many other young men and women of the right had already been thinking but couldn't articulate because of the nature of the institutional right, now we could articulate them, now you could say it. So a great example of this is on foreign policy. That South Carolina debate in February 2016, I believe, was quite... Shocking. And at the time, I resisted it, right? I was working for the Wall Street Journal editorial page.
2: That was when he thrashed Jeb Bush for his brother's war. Correct. Bush did not keep us safe on nine eleven. He actually
1: said that. And he also said the Iraq war was a failure. said it twice. I remember the gasp that I let out and that everyone I knew probably let out watching the debate in their own living rooms. And suddenly you're like... Well, yeah, look, at it. it's been, what have we done, right? It's a disaster. So you could suddenly say it. And there was other issues as well, I would say. Not all of these did he deliver as president on policy grounds. But for example, I'm not going to let people die on the street. People forget why he said that in regards to health care. It was because Ted Cruz pressed them saying, aren't you a socialist if you're not willing to let, allow people to die in the street? And Trump said it twice. He's like, I'm not going to do it, right? So I'm going to maintain entitlement. He also said we don't we don't have time to talk about political correctness. Uh, I guess I appreciate that. Insofar as there are the sort of uh, strictures in which you can't address reality, and often, by the way, these work now to the, they redound to the benefit of the powerful. So, for example, there's this famous podcast put out by the firm REI, which is a, a outdoor gear firm. And uh, the chief diversity officer begins saying, hi, my name is so-and-so, I use she, her pronouns, and I wanna acknowledge that I'm coming to you from the traditional lands of the Olone people. And then she goes on to say, and this podcast is about why REI workers shouldn't join a union. Isn't that an example of political correctness or whatever you wanna call it, wokeness? being like a perfect managerial ideology. So if mm. Trump could get us a little bit beyond that, that was worthwhile as well. But I think his main benefit to conservative intellectuals is just letting us, again, to voice what we already knew. The Iraq war was terrible. Free trade deals that we promoted aggressively hadn't worked out for working class people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. COVID was no bargain in the end under Trump. If you're addressing that to me, I would say, I think one of the major problems with that was that he... he um, Clung too close to Dr. Fauci because we're seeing now that regardless of the COVID regime adopted, the outcomes are roughly the same. So there was one great achievement there, which was to prove that you could decouple at least in a limited way from China. Right? There was various moves within the administration, executive moves that. And that's a good thing, decoupling from China. Sure, because I want the U.S. to be able to bring back manufacturing jobs. Speaking of Trump, that's a consistent Trumpian theme on which he somewhat delivered, right? So for example, tariffs used to be a crazy idea. And of course, he was ferociously opposed by the institutional right on the question of tariffs, which is a sort of way to try to wean ourselves off of uh, China in various ways. The Biden administration has not removed a single tariff. That goes back to my earlier point about how he was liberating in some ways, policy wise, you could say, hey, yeah, why are we so dogmatic about free trade?
0: Sorab Amari, Matt Sittman. I'd like you each to take a crack at, it seems to me, the fundamental fear out there is that we're losing our taste, our skill, our confidence for democracy itself, for popular sovereignty, for the election that settles arguments. The only thing like it is a sort of jury verdict. Between unfounded charges of fraud in the 2020 election, the very thought that state legislatures should pick our electors, despite gerrymandering, despite enormous money influences, how do we deal with the doubts about our own democracy, including the anti-democratic features that are written into the Constitution, including the United States Senate, which is which is grossly unrepresentative of the whole? How do we get back to a lusty confidence
1: in our democracy itself? Saurabh? I will just say that my position has always been, since the rise of populist movements of the left and right, Beginning, I would say, 2015, 2016, on both sides of the Atlantic, my position has always been to defend politics, politics itself as confrontation, not as everyone getting along, not as the idea of a kind of elite consensus, but rather something messy. And I would say that the burden here is on the uniparty elites that I described that you alluded to, Chris, right? The elite center left and center right. The neoliberal, neoconservative establishment reacted to populist ferment, both on the left and the right, both on the Bernie side and the Trump side, by framing it as this is anti democratic, which doesn't make sense, sense any at all. In many ways, they want to democratize issues that had been relegated to expert opinion, such as free trade, immigration, etc. So that this rhetoric of populist movements are a threat to democracy were used to seek to undermine popular outcomes at the ballot box, whether that's Trump's election or the outcome of Brexit, which the British establishment spent a long time attempting to undo before finally relenting to the European Union using its disciplinary mechanisms against Greek leftists, against Hungarian and Polish right populists, etc. That's essentially depoliticization. It's an attempt to remove politics as confrontation and relegate big decisions to market elites and managerial elites and I oppose that. And unfortunately it sometimes conjures reactions on um, on the populist base which can also be ugly. So the answer from the point of view of elites should be to actually trust democracy, to not frame political outcomes as threats to democracy when you actually mean threats to kind of neoliberal rule. That's my point. Defend democracy and defend politics.
2: Pat Fittman. I would say one difference between Soarb and I, is that in the United States, there often is a difference between quote-unquote political outcomes and democracy. I mean, Trump won millions fewer votes than Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I accept that he won via the Electoral College. I accept that. I'm not going to say it wasn't a legitimate election in that sense. But, you know, my political hero in many ways is Abraham Lincoln. And he said in his debates with Stephen Douglas, to say, you know, whether you should vote slavery up or down is the kind of, can democracy kind of vote for the undermining of the foundations of democracy itself. And one thing I would just say is that the Republican candidate for governor of Wisconsin flat out said, if I'm elected, Democrats will never be elected in this state again because of how we'll change the electoral laws. As a political message, I'm not totally in disagreement with Sorab in that I think you should tell voters what you're going to do for them more than have abstract discussions of democracy. That said, I think it's just simply the fact that Republicans right now, given we haven't mentioned January 6th yet, that was a violent attempt to overthrow the results of an election. How are we supposed to react to that? Are we supposed to not talk about it? Are we supposed to pretend it didn't happen? We're supposed to talk about it. And I want to hear Saurabh
1: on January 6th. Yeah, I thought it was an ugly scene. I didn't think the electoral outcome was threatened, as indeed it wasn't in the final analysis. We have to take into account that I would say left of center elites in blue governed cities and states sent the message throughout the summer of 2020 that they would tolerate attacks on federal courthouses in places like Portland, that they would tolerate violent so-called autonomous zones in places like Seattle. Um, the result of that is potentially an equally ugly hooliganry, although I shouldn't say equally ugly because in, in some sense it did not last nearly as long. It did
2: not do nearly as much damage as what we saw during the sort of summer of 2020 riots. The only reason we were able to actually certify the election is because they didn't hang Mike Pence or find Nancy Pelosi and kill them. So... It happened that the elected leaders that were actually going to certify the election survived this assault. Mm. Robert Draper, his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, which covers some of the aftermath of January 6th, you know, Brian Fanone, one of the Capitol police officers, was drug outside, tased half a dozen times with his own taser, and beaten unconscious. He showed that body cam footage to people like Lindsey Graham and Ron Johnson from Wisconsin to say... Could we investigate what actually happened on January 6th? And you know what Lindsey Graham told him? Why don't you just shoot him? Mm. Ron Johnson said, I've been to Trump rallies. These are peaceful, God-fearing people. It's a total denial of reality in this case of what happened on January 6th.
0: Coming up, who can imagine a happy ending for this movie? This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. We're blood sampling the new right republicanism of Sorab Amari. He edits the young magazine, Compact. We're also with his liberal counterpart, Matt Sitman, whose podcast is Know Your Enemy.
2: What have you been hearing, Matt? You know, I have to say, a lot of what Sorab said, I give him credit for. On economics, I think he's thought harder and more critically than a lot of the people maybe on the new right or the new, new, new right. It seems like every decade there's a new right. And in particular, I'm glad Sorab talked about power, that workers need power, that unions need power to check you know, concentrated economic power and be able to have some control over their own fates. But I do wonder how far those kind of democratic commitments go or how that might cash out in other spheres other than economics, where we might disagree some. And there's one thing Saurabh has written that I've thought a lot about over the past couple of years. It was in 2019. I'm sure he knows what I'm going to reference in the magazine First Things, the kind of conservative... Christian or religious magazine, and it was a piece called "Against David Frenchism." And that piece, Sorab talked about politics as enmity and war. And there's a one quote near the start of it that I thought maybe would be worth trying to unpack. And he said, referring to David French, his kind of interlocutor in this debate, they were talking about fighting the culture wars, and Sorab said this or wrote this. I added, the only way is through, that is to say, to fight the culture war with the aim of defeating the enemy and enjoying the spoils in the form of a public square reordered to the common good and ultimately the highest good, capital H, capital G. And for one thing, that seems to me to be redolent of the Nazi jurist Karl Schmitt, his friend's enemy distinctions, with perhaps some Christian commitments kind of mingled in there. And my worry is that it's a kind of Christian authoritarianism. You know, I think one reason Sorab's writing has captured people's imaginations is because it has met a moment. There is a lot of discontent over foreign policy, America's rule in the world, over our economic system. But also it's a moment in which it seems like the democratic commitments of the Republican Party and many people on the right seem to me to be Rather attenuated. Democratic meaning majoritarian. Majoritarian, yes. One of the questions or one of the phrases I've used on Know Your Enemy is, what are they giving themselves permission to do? And I do wonder what it means to render politics in martial terms. And I specifically wonder, so in that passage, you appeal to the highest good, capital H, capital G. And I wonder what that means for a diverse, pluralistic country of over 330 million Americans. What does the highest good mean?
1: The American political tradition has referred to the highest good in the kind of classical and Christian as, as in God, has referred to it since before there was a republic. In the colonial era, for example, there were Sabbatarian laws, right? That, for example, they said that, that one day a week should be hallowed for rest and worship. Now, those laws were on the books in some cases until like 2018, 2019. The last state to get rid of its statewide blue laws was South Dakota. It was in 2018 that they abolished it. Now, interestingly enough, and this, I think is another example. It wasn't the left, it wasn't the wokesters who got rid of the Sabbatarian law in South Dakota. It was the Chamber of Commerce kind of Republicans who wanted big box stores to be open 24-7 and not have the intrusion of a day of rest and worship. To say that we want a public square in which the highest good, namely you know man as a, as a religious animal, has an end, right? And as a Catholic, Matt recognizes this kind of language or, or vernacular... To say that is not some departure from the American tradition. It's not some rupture towards some totalitarian new thing. It's just going back to, like, in some cases, 2018, 2019. In some cases, going back to a cultural consensus that prevailed for a long time in this country. And so, and, and it still is very, very democratically, small d democratically important to a lot of Americans. So there's a famous bit of prose that will probably end up on my sort of every obituary that's ever written about me and it's that sentence that Matt quoted with its kind of unstable mix of Thomism and Iranian militancy. But in fact, if you put it in a wider context of the American tradition, it's not that wild. We had a public square at least nominally ordered to the common good and the highest good for a very long time.
2: I mean, but sort if all you mean by the highest good is like blue laws, I really don't think that's the radical alternative you seem to want. And it's especially almost amusing as Catholics... Uh, you know, there was a different vision of the highest good in this country that wasn't Catholic and Catholics had limited rights in some cases, right? There was prejudice against Catholics. To appeal to the American tradition, I think you have to be a little more particular in that. And if all you mean is blue laws, I think there'd be a lot of people on the left say, yeah, let's have a day where we don't have commerce, where people can rest, where they don't have to go into work. But is that really all you mean by it? And this is a good question that's often posed
1: to the new right, which is, sure. your philosophical claims are radical, but then when they shake out in terms of Policy prescriptions, there's a kind of normalcy about them. They're like, oh, you mean blue laws and more uh, time for women to take off work after pregnancy and uh, greater welfare net and more rights for unions? And yes, that's it, right? But somehow, what would it mean for people like me? But somehow, this sort of philosophical liberalism has gotten so far right? And it's so become fully itself, as my friend Patrick Deneen would say, that that particular matrix that used to be kind of perfectly recognizable, a kind of 1990s Democrats vision of the good life and a decent political community is now seen as, wow, a dangerous rupture. What are these guys talking about? They're talking about a situation in which, and this is many people of different faiths, and in some cases, even secular people could agree with, in which, The society makes it easier for people to live ordinary lives of virtue, which Chris quoted this line that I often use. And that often means, by the way, economic prescriptions that are familiar to the left, right? Workers should be able to work 40 hours a week, and that's it. And you should be able to, you know,
2: live a secure life. I mean, I think we've established there's a lot of economic overlap between us.
1: Sure. um, This attempt to frame the new right as something like a great rupture or a radical tendency Collapses in the face of the reality of the kind of policy work that we're doing and where we're pushing the Republican Party. We're pushing the Republican Party to not just say we're the party of the multiracial working class and then continue to be against collective bargaining, but to say walk the walk and show us what that means to be a party of the multiracial working class. Sorry, but I want to ask a sort of personal question about who's the we.
0: Is there a larger project here? And I'm also thinking you're very sharp on the way institutions and big interests sort of groom young talent and make them safe for big roles in the Federalist Society, picking judges, this kind of thing. Are you sure nobody's grooming you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a loaded term these days, Chris.
1: What is the larger project, and who's with you in the long run, it could very well be a small group of writers and academics. And what I pursue is what I think is as an American, as an American by choice and an immigrant, this is the only society I have. Like Welbeck's protagonist in Submission, you know, there's I don't have an Israel. I don't I'm nowhere I can make aliyah to. This is it. So it has to work. And I'm a father and I want this society to be just relatively more decent. In every sense, not just the kind of moral sense, but an economic and political sense as well. And so I just, you know, say what I believe. And, you know, luckily the, you know, in your mid thirties in journalism and having achieved a measure of success allows you, especially the subscription model that's kind of blossoming the past few years, allows you to do that without having to, you know, I I don't, believe me, I don't have to pay obeisance to anyone. (laughs) That's the beautiful thing about compact. What role do you see yourself in? in a
0: new right Republican Party. And who are your models? William F. Buckley, perhaps, Pat Buchanan, perhaps,
1: the writer, advocate, intellectual? Yeah, sometimes more like Alvi Singer. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I see myself as a as a, I hate the term public intellectual, so I, I refuse to apply it to myself. I'm just the writer, and I get to say what I believe. One of the blessings of my life is that I get to do that, and some people listen, and Some of them happen to be influential, but plenty of them aren't. They're just sort of moms in the kind of heartland. They, you know, read me, and
0: that's it. I should also add, you have 138,000 followers on Twitter. I just checked. When I check your Twitter feed, I also have to say,
1: I wonder if the literary and the public radio Saurab is the same guy. Sure. I mean, it's a different medium. You know, sometimes on Twitter you have to be... um, more populous. <laughs> definitionally a more populous medium. I also publish books, and one does as the Romans do, or one does as the medium dictates. Let me ask you both, but starting with you, Soreb.
0: look ahead five years, 10 years. Imagine a lot of your ideas coming to fruit. What is your definition of victory for right republicanism reinvented? Can you conjure a happy ending for your story, for this story?
1: For me, the happy ending is a Republican party in which GOP candidates don't just say they want to be a working class party, they don't just appeal to the working class as a cultural marker, but that actually embraces the concept of collective bargaining, of countervailing power, and so that the union vote in this country becomes genuinely competitive between the two parties again, as it was, for example, as recently as the Nixon era. My unhappy ending, as I've said and I've written this, is if this kind of new right ferment stays merely at the level of culture war and sort of owning the libs on Twitter, I've done my share of owning the libs and it is enjoyable, but if it only stays at that level, then I will have felt like I've failed. That doesn't mean that I don't care about those cultural issues. And in some cases, as I just said, those cultural issues have a nexus with the material issues and economic ones as well. But if it becomes only culture war, and then the Republican Party returns to its pro-business, pro-war, pro-big business mentality, then I will have failed. So for me, the Republican Party as a populist party will fulfill its promise if it actually embraces realism and restraint, rather than Hawkism on two fronts, three fronts, and a global confrontation between the forces of liberty and the forces of darkness, et cetera, et cetera. That's one measure. And the second one, here's where I think Matt will agree with me more if it actually embraces pro labor reforms and actually embraces collective bargaining as a way for ordinary Americans to mount countervailing power in the workplace and secure better wages, better working conditions, health care, and so on. I support that. And I know that I happen to talk to Republican candidates in this new right ferment who are supportive of that. But whether or not it translates into policy is an open question. Under Trump, unfortunately, on the labor front, it didn't. Initially, there was this brief moment where Trump invited a lot of leaders of uh, labor organizations who had voted for his opponent. He invited them to the White House, and they talked about steel import tariffs and a few other things. But then when it actually came to running the administration, because the Republican Party, you go to the people you have and the Republican appointees you have to labor are all like American Enterprise Institute types, such that uh, the Trump administration shook out as you know just any other typical anti-union GOP government you would have. And that was a tragedy. And so my test for seeing this is whether or not in the next two to four years, you begin to see genuinely pro-labor policies from the Republican Party. And the other thing that I mentioned, which is actual restraint and realism in foreign policy. I would say a lot of the establishment of the Republican Party is still fully on board with, I would say, mindless escalation over Ukraine, escalation that doesn't take into account the potential ramifications for Europe's energy and manufacturing future, the potential, God forbid, for uh, nuclear conflict. It's just this, an escalator that just goes one way. And unfortunately, I would say that y- you see the retreats with some, this is something I've written about, including at The American Conservative. The re- Retreat of the old anti-war left, which I remember, um, you know, for from the first, let's say, ten years of the uh,
2: post nine eleven era. Matt Zettman,
1: how does that
0: sound to you and your own definition of a happy ending?
2: The situation in Ukraine, I think, should be dealt with caution and some prudence. We are aiding a democracy that had been invaded by a foreign power. More broadly speaking, I think Biden has had one of the more restrained foreign policies of any president, kind of in my adult lifetime. He's. Definitely restricted the use of drones to a far greater degree than Obama or Trump. Trump dropped more tonnage of bombs on Yemen than Bush and Obama combined, for one thing. It was Biden that got us actually out of Afghanistan. So I think Biden actually has a kind of interesting foreign policy in that he definitely has shown restraint in certain areas, far more than his predecessor. Hmm. Uh, I don't really expect a happy ending. And, you know, if people like Sohrab can get the Republican Party to be slightly less plutocratic than. Maybe that would be something to tip my hat to him about, but I, I am dubious that that will happen. And I foresee over the next few years, public schools being gutted, the police becoming more and more militarized, more and more kind of concentrations of wealth at the top, so on and so forth. And I think my my worst case scenario is something like we end up similar to Hungary, where we have nominally have elections, but it's really one party authoritarian rule with kind of a facade of democratic politics to give it a, a veneer of legitimacy. All I'll say is I think on foreign policy especially, the left-right alliance would come together mostly and say no. Say no to certain things. Say no to certain wars, to certain interventions. But what I'm not sure about is the constructive vision for peace and cooperation and prosperity, That might be where left and right, even non-interventionists left and right, maybe have some differences.
1: I see more optimism around that now because I think conditions have changed since the Reagan era. There are so many on the right, including myself, who step out into the street where I live in in New York City and you see so much misery. You see addicts on the streets, people with mental health issues. You see Uh, symptoms of what I've described with this kind of pervasive private power in the form of working class people living really precarious, insecure lives. Now, left and right might have different answers to those problems. Although, again, as I've tried to suggest, in some cases, some of us are trying to find convergences even on those types of domestic issues. But what they can agree on for sure is that a nation that has these internal crises has no business treating itself as a kind of global messiah, it's spreading democracy and taking on tyranny everywhere. We can agree on the fact that we need to reconsolidate at home. Now we can debate about what that means and how to do that. So, Rab, you've just outlined a big project for democratic thinkers.
0: Has he not, Matt Sitman?
2: Yes, the Democratic Party, this is the one of the tricky things about talking with people like Sorab. I'm put in the position of nominally defending the Democratic Party, which is in really bad shape. And I think even intellectual currents on the left, you know, I think since Bernie Sanders ran in 2016, there's a crop of younger left-wing intellectuals of which I count myself among their number. But I think, you know, the amount of power we have and even influence in the Democratic Party is less than Sorab <laughs> might have in the Republican Party. Uh, I mean, we saw how they treated Bernie Sanders, the one guy who's basically just an FDR New Deal liberal. I wish the Democratic Party would be as vicious and effective against Republicans as they were against their own left in the party.
1: (laughs) Rob, maybe a last word or advice to the Democrats. I would love to see a Democratic Party that is squarely focused on economic issues and a measure of foreign policy restraint, which whatever you want to call it, the old left agenda, which has largely been, been... abandoned, I would say, to the point where, as I mentioned, even Bernie Sanders smacked down the authors of this letter calling for uh, diplomatic restraint when it came to the Ukraine question. That's created an opening, I would say, for other intellectual formations to step into that space of calling for realism and restraint, for putting class first. It's a crazy reversal in some ways that intellectuals of the right, are some of them, you would call them class reductionists. They put class as a sort of fundamental driver of social questions and and social outcomes. That's an abdication by the left. It's an opening created by the left. And I think maybe, maybe the temperature of some of these cultural questions would simmer down if we had a left that was sort of geared toward class issues and working class issues as it used to be at least to some degree throughout the 20th century. Sorab Amari, Matt Sitman. Thank
0: you. This has been intensely engaging. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Sorab Amari, editor of Compact Magazine, and Matthew Sitman, co-host of the Know Your Enemy podcast. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of some of the best independent podcasts out there. This week, check out The Lonely Palette, a podcast bringing art history to the masses from the eye and mind of producer Tamar Abishai. Tamar's latest travels to an outdoor installation called Fallen Sky at the Storm King Art Center in the Hudson Valley. It's the creation of artist Sarah Z. Tamar describes it as a map of the moon etched into a hillside. Find it at thelonelypalette.com and explore the whole panoply of Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.